One of the things I do to help kind of counter the ambiguity that we face as founders is to map each of these stages to a position in a sports infrastructure. So we start off with the, it is actually pre-launch, it's the dissatisfied employee. Defining question is, you know, isn't there a better way, right? There has to be a better way of doing this. I, I bet I could do it better. And it's like being a trainee on the sideline. Hello and welcome to The Melting Pot. I'm your host, Dominic Monkhouse. The Melting Pot is a result of my hunger and curiosity for optimizing business performance, exploring corporate culture, customer addiction, and building high-performing teams. It's full of advice from my guests, entrepreneurs, fellow business authors, and examples from some of my work over the last few years, coaching the CEOs and leadership teams of some amazingly successful tech firms. The Melting Pot is my attempt to synthesize what I've learned along the way to help you build a highly scalable business and realize the potential of your life's work. If you enjoy the episode, head over to monkhouseandcompany.com forward slash podcast to find today's show notes and more editions of The Melting Pot. While you're there, if you subscribe to the newsletter, you can pick up a copy of my new book, Plan B, How to Scale Your Technology Business Faster and Achieve Plan A. Enjoy. Hello, today I'm talking with and learning from Scott Retimer. I was on Scott's podcast recently, The Secrets of the High Demand Coach. And after we'd finished recording his podcast, I said, look, I've got to get you on to talk about your new book, The Founder's Evolution. Scott has helped found a ridiculous number of businesses in the US and has then realized that many founders go through an arc, seven stages. There's the dissatisfied employee, which is sort of pre-startup. There's the startup entrepreneur. You get some success, you hire some people, you become a reluctant manager. You realize that managing people is not your thing and you become a disillusioned leader. If you can get through that, you can become a chief executive. If you can get through that, you can become a true owner. And if you can get through there, because you love the game, you can become a visionary founder again. And so we talk through the arc of that at about a thousand miles an hour. It's great fun. And the book is free. There's a link to it in the show notes, but fantastic conversation. I'm sure if you are a founder, you will recognize this journey. It's something that I see all the time with clients. And as Scott said, once he realized there was a path, he felt relief. And so he's had to put together this book. He, in the same way that dissatisfied employees feel an urge to start a business. They feel as though they can almost not start a business to solve this problem. He saw that founders go through this arc and he saw this pain over and over again. And he felt he had to write down and document the path so that people could have a map to get out of the pain and misery they often find themselves in. Fantastic conversation. I really enjoyed it. I'm sure you will too. I'm Scott Ritzheimer. We actually met on my podcast, The Secrets of the High Demand Coach. And for those who are listening, you don't have the same disadvantage of those who are watching. And that is that I look like I'm about 22 years old. So I constantly have to apologize for this. I've actually squeezed a lot in a relatively short career. It sounds outlandish, but I promise it's true. I've helped launch about 20,000 organizations in my time. And when you do something at that scale, and when you go in and do it yourself as well, helps launch and scale up our own business, you start to see some patterns play out, right? And, and I remember that moment for me, it actually, it was more than one moment. It was it was multiple, but there are these times when you see something playing out across all these different clients and then you realize, oh, I'm doing the same thing. And seeing that happen so many times and feeling the pain of it myself, I started to recognize all these different stories They're really just one story playing over and over again. And the folks that succeeded, this is businesses, it's nonprofits, cause-based organizations, it's churches, the whole gamut. Folks that are starting businesses and nonprofits, starting their organizations, and then scaling them up successfully all followed a similar pattern. And those that failed, they failed because they didn't follow that pattern. And and so it, it kind of haunted me for a while. I just did a, a podcast with a dear friend of mine, Les McEwen, and he said, well, you know, why did you write the book? And I, 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 the answer to that is, it's one of those things, and I think this is true of just about anything great that anyone has ever done, is they couldn't not do it. 
It was one of the, you know, I just, I had to do it. I actually enjoy writing. I didn't enjoy the process of writing a book. I cheated a little bit and I kept it short. Uh, and there's an, there's an intentionality behind that because founders are very, very busy people. So it's kind of a win-win situation. But basically what I did is I saw this pattern playing out again. There are stage after stage that founders go through and I put it together in a map, put it into a short book, called it the Founders Evolution. So Les, friend of mine as well, love Les, he's been on the podcast. And I just realized Do Lectures was on a couple of weeks ago. It was probably there again, which is, I met him there a few years ago. 22,000 organizations though. How did you launch 22,000 organizations? Yeah, crazy thing. A lot of those, interestingly enough, were churches. So what happened was I, I started at a business right out of, basically out of high school. I got married when on the day I turned 20. I moved to Atlanta, Georgia, didn't have a job, but had a wife. And it was like, we got to figure this thing out here pretty quick. So met a guy at, at the church I was going to who had a business called Start Church. And for you know lack of a better option, I said, hey, I'll go work with you. A couple months after I started there, he sold the company and the new buyers, wonderful people, but they systematically and unintentionally destroyed the company over about 18 months. And I learned more about how how not to do business in, in those 18 months than I could have in, in a lifetime otherwise. It was an exceptionally painful experience for all of us. Fast forward, well, he had owner financed it, the original founder and friend of mine. And so they called him in at very end of August, 2008 and said, hey, we're gonna declare bankruptcy. If you want any of the assets of the company, you can come get them, which at the time was like two broken computers and a chair that had like all of the padding worn out of it, you know? So it was like sitting on on steel. And that was it. But it was basically the blessing to say, hey, you can go and give this another shot if you want to. And so he called me from the U-Haul on the way up to Nashville and said, hey, will you help me relaunch this thing? Will you do it? So helped him kind of co-found the relaunch of this company. Now, this is September 2008. So not a great time to start a business. And and somehow it worked. You know, stock market fell 40% and we grew, you know, about a thousand percent because it was from nothing to something. But it just started growing. And then we kept growing. And basically what we did was we helped very, we, we called ourselves the second call. Someone says, hey, I want to start a church. They would call their wife and say, hey, I'm going to start a church. And then they'd call us and say, how do I start a church? And so for the first five, 10 years, we were helping people from the very base level ground up you know, from nothing to something. It was a remarkable process. And, and as that happened, we started you know getting the ear and attention of business leaders as well and other nonprofit leaders. And so we started doing other nonprofit we started doing other businesses and it just kept growing and expanding from there. And, and so a lot of what we did was the administrative side of it, but we had to help them synthesize, like, what are we doing? What's the vision for this? How are we going to run it? And just had, you know, a ground level frontline vantage point of all of these, these launches. And, and we did it at scale. So we did between, you know, my time there, we did between 1,000 and about 2,000 organizations a year. I was there for 13 years and that was a remarkable experience. Now, I'll, I would do a terrible disservice to the thousands of churches that have started in the UK recently, but church in the UK versus church in the US, it's just more like local government over here. It's just not a commercial enterprise. But what do I have to have to start a church? Like if I came to you and said, right, I want to start a church. Is that it? Yeah, just about nothing. I mean, here in the U.S., separation of church and states are real thing. So, uh, you know, we, we kind of joke uh, here in Georgia, especially the requirement to be an ordained pastor is to be able to spell pastor, right? Like it, it's 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 not a whole lot. And I absolutely adore it, actually. It's got all kinds of flaws and can be abused. Yes, of course. But there's a beautiful freedom to do church in the way that you see it need to be done. And, and that's really what keeps that that ethos that you guys have there not uh, not a hundred percent, but we don't fight the same battle that you do. And what's really cool about, it, especially if you draw a straight line from the the nonprofit world to the business world, is it gives freedom to visionaries to do their thing, right? And so the 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 person who's starting a church here in the U.S., the founder, not all pastors, but founding pastors are almost universally visionaries. 
which makes them very, very similar to entrepreneurs. You know, it's, it's an entrepreneurial thing. Yeah. It's the same journey. And, I, and you know, being a for-profit corporation that served nonprofit corporations, walking through the journey myself and helping other people walk through the journey, I realized it is the same thing. Like there are a couple semantic differences, but it, it, you know, the, the, the person who's crazy enough to go start a church is cut from the same cloth of the person who's crazy enough to go start a business. Fab. So you've mapped this process. Uh, how many... How many phases are there in the founder's evolution? Yeah, seven stages in the founder's evolution. They go from pre-launch all the way through to what I call the visionary founder at the very end, where you get back into the game for the love of the game. And there are a couple of, of big things, like why is this? Why does it matter? And, and one is that, I mean, universally, being a founder is a really hard thing. And, and one of the things that we kind of expect is the bigger my organization gets, I'll kind of graduate from the hard part of this. And you know this, that's not even remotely true. The challenge changes. And some things get easier, but most things don't get all that much easier. They just get different. And, and, and so what happens is we, we just keep bumping into this. The, the number one kind of complaint I had about being a founder was I, I was so tired of being blindsided. I was so tired of like figuring the game out. And the moment I figured it out, it changed again. And it was just a, a constant point of frustration for me. Give me an example about where you felt like it was just within grasp and then it wasn't. Yeah, so we started the thing literally in his basement, right? If if he had a, you know, it's basically a garage story, but it was a basement. And a funny part about that, we got in trouble with the HOA. So we had a bunch of employees in his basement. We had to like bust them in. So what happens in the basement days, it was all about, you know, what he and I could execute on. Right, we just had to get stuff done. And I mean, it was everything. It was, you know, how do we help serve our clients? How do we get the sales coming in? We built a CRM in a couple of weeks on our own. Like we, we just, it was all about what we could do. And then I remember kind of fast forwarding a little bit. Now we had a team of people and it wasn't really like, I couldn't work my way out of the jam anymore. I had to get other people moving forward. And I didn't like that. Like I, I liked getting stuff done. I did not like sitting around waiting for other people to do it. And so I still remember it, it, was, it was like one of the most embarrassing leadership experiences of my life. But I remember finally realizing, oh, we need a leadership team. Like we've got 20, 25 people here and we don't have a leadership team. It's just me and him. And he was on the road, you know, weeks out of the year, basically. And, and so I had like, the weirdest leadership team meeting ever. It was like, I was so awkward. And I'm a natural introvert. I was a terrible communicator. And I had no idea what I was doing. I mean, the very first leadership team I ever sat on was a team that I had to build. I just didn't know anything about it. And so we get through this like super awkward and, and it's like, how do we get other leaders and how do I get them moving forward? How do I help, you know, put other folks in the organization grow when I'm not talking to them anymore? My leaders are talking to them. And then we kind of figured that out. We had the leadership team groove working and it was going great. And, and you know, fast forward a few years and we start bumping into challenges again where those leaders aren't really keeping up. And it was the first time we really hit that. Like, I, I didn't know how to deal with a leader who wasn't making it. We had folks who were in production that didn't. Make, and it's like, that was very clear. If you didn't get the work done, then we, we had to figure out what was wrong or, you know, we had to find another place for you or if, you know, whether that was in the company or out of the company. It was just relatively straightforward. But what do you do when a, a leader's not working well? How do you, like, how do you measure that when it's like their team's not performing well or is it them? And, and then at the same time, like, these are some of my closest friends, right? And, and it's just, how do you know? navigate this. It's, and yo, it's the same pattern everyone goes through. But here's the thing of it. If you don't recognize it's the same pattern to go through, if you don't have the experience that you and I do of seeing this play out again and again, it, it feels like it's just you. It, it feels like, I remember telling folks, it felt like every day I had a map for what was behind me, but I had no clue what was in front of me. I'd given up on even pretending to know I knew what was coming because I got it wrong so many times. And, and, and you know, the, the big revelation for me at that stage as a leader was when I found Les's book, the uh, Predictable Success book, I tell him to this day, it was the very first time I ever felt like I was on a map, that my company was on a map. 
because we were making, I mean, we were creating organizations from nothing. We, we built an industry that did not exist. There was not a, you know, administrative church launching service or, you know, whatever. That, that did, it didn't exist. And so in many ways, yes, we were pioneering and we were doing it, but in overvaluing the fact that we were pioneering in one area, we thought we were pioneering in every area. And so I was just walking in blind to every stage of this journey. And, and it was just emotionally exhausting. People ring me up and they say, Dom, I've got this really successful business and I just hate it. I used to, I used to love it when it was smaller and less successful because now I'm doing things I don't enjoy doing. And, or, you know, they say, I've got this leadership team and I say, how many people are on it? And they say 13. It's like, okay, that's too many. Why is it 13? Oh, well, you know, so-and-so has been here from the beginning. So we hired somebody above them, but we left them on the leadership team because we didn't want to have the difficult conversation with them or, I quite often say when I'm talking to a, a prospective new client, I say, one of the things I have to warn you is if all of this stuff goes well and, and the pace picks up and you know you get a higher level of accountability in the organization, some of your leaders might not make it. Is that okay? And it's never occurred to them. But you know, if you're in here, Division Three soccer and you wanted to get to the Premier League, most of the playing staff would not still be on the field. You know, And so it's great when people do step up but when people don't, it's just, I think it's really sad, right? Because they the opportunity was there and either they couldn't take it or they didn't want to take it. And, you know, you really want all of those people to end up being the, well, you know, you want, well, it's about a third of founders are the CEO at IPO in tech firms. And I'm sure the numbers are similar as, as a leadership team grows up through these various stages. People, people drop off because the organization's just out grown their capabilities. And some of that's appropriate, right? It's not one of those things that that indicates that something's wrong. There are some people who are just thrive in those smaller environments. They're, they're just built for them. So it's not all bad. But I think what happens is when we make it all bad or all good, like I have to have the same team with me, I have to take all my people with me, you're going to drag people in who have no business operating at the next level with you. Well, there's a lack of transparency around expectation. And so, you know, it, it falls off a cliff, but nobody told anybody they were near the cliff before they fell off. Yeah. Now, the, the flip side of it is a lot more people can make the leap, including founders. So I'm of the ilk. There's a lot of like, should you bring in a professional CEO? And part of the journey is bringing in a professional CEO. Absolutely. Because you're not going to live forever. So there has to be a transition at some point in time. But it's a lot longer than most people recognize. The transition is, is the single biggest change, right? Moving from what I would call the coach on the sideline, GM in the box, or, or, or the disillusioned leader to CEO, right? What happens is a lot of founders don't make it because they they misleave, they misunderstand the stages and how they work. And this particular transition, I like to compare it to watching a movie, right? Pick your favorite movie. You've got like Jason Bourne, just to date myself a little bit. If you watch any of the Jason Bourne movies up to about the last seven minutes and stop, they're downright depressing, right? It's just everything that can go wrong does go wrong, right? How do we find this entertaining? It's not until the last seven minutes that it all becomes worth it, right? Where Jason saves the day and we tie up the loose ends and, and it's all that. So many founders play the first, you know, call it hour and 23 minutes of an hour and 30 minute movie. Now this is years and decades in some cases, but they stop just short of the denouement. I love that. Well, it's that. And then the rules change and they're back at the beginning again. And they never get that. They never get that sense of, well, it's that sort of enjoy the journey, celebrate the success along the way is often missing as well. It's just grind, grind, grind. I'm so glad that you brought that up because I actually take time in the book at every stage to say, just stop. You can get to the next stage if you want to. Here's how to do it. But here's the thing you really need to understand. There is a joy that's available to you right now in this stage that you won't have at any other stage. There's something special about right here and right now that you can tangibly grab hold of and enjoy right now before you lose it. I've got a client at the moment and I keep saying to them, this might well be the best company you ever work for right now, right, right here. And you don't look happy enough you all seem a little bit miserable. So honestly, it might this might be the best it ever gets. So if you can't celebrate here, when are you going to celebrate? Yeah, it's so true. I mean, I've got uh, here at the house, I've got a 12-year-old boy, a 10-year-old boy, and a, a two-year-old girl. 
And, and, and I, you know, I'm living this in real time because I had my first one, we were 25. Uh, my last one, I was 35. I'm a different person 10 years later. And I've been shocked at how different the first two years of her life have been relative to the first two years of either of my boys' life. I was so interested in like growing them up and getting them to a point where it's like, I, I can do something with them, right? It's, it's kind of like the first couple of years is like, yeah, here, mom, do I, you've got all the, yeah, I, I have nothing, right? I, I have no idea. It was a little like Ricky Bobby, like, what do I do with my hands? What do I do with this thing? Yeah, I, I just have no idea. And with her, uh, I, I had the opportunity and just the life and, and honestly, some just really difficult circumstances that, that uh, led to us being able to, to bring her into the home. But I appreciated those first two years. I wasn't any more helpful, right? But my, my posture and my heart toward her and my, my intention to just enjoy this for what it is has completely changed my experience with her. And part of me is like, I'm so glad I did. And part of me is like, man, I can't believe I missed all of this last time around. Ah, uh, yes. I think you realize, certainly I've got four kids and the second two, the first ones you worried if you drop them, they'll break. And then you realize you can actually neglect them quite a lot and they'll still survive. I have to say, I, one of one of my clients, James and I, he's got daughters. We both hate crafting. There's nothing I can do about that, but sticking pom-poms on card and cutting up ribbons. I can't get joy out of that, but take them outside, get them on their bikes. Let's get in the pool. All of that is fantastic fun. Yeah, absolutely. And and so I, I think though, to bring this back for folks, it's the same thing for our journey as founders. And if you're just trying to get to the next level, the really kind of awful truth is just like the movie, the next level on several occasions is not up and to the right, it is down and to the right. It's not going to feel better than the last one did. For example, let's take what is stage three in it. And that's what I call the reluctant manager. And you'll have seen this. It's the star player has some success. Now they've got a team and they're looking around thinking, what's wrong with these people, right? Like every time I hire somebody new, I have to manage them. I have to tell them what to do. And I've got to go sell more to cover their salary. And they don't do it right. So I got to go and clean up after them. Like what in the world is going on? And Cool, because now I'm doing a thing that I'm not, you know, I have some natural talent, probably in sales or whatever it is. And with any gifted player of sport or talented person, often you can't say why you have that talent. It just came easy to you. So teaching other people is often really hard. And and you should never be a manager unless it's something you love doing. And the star player becomes the manager so often in organizations that your first leadership, that leadership team you had, you know, they're not the leadership team because they love managing and they had skills. They are the leadership team because they were here first and they're the best guy you've got. So you promote them and or, or you don't have any process in place to pay them more to be a sole contributor. So they want, they've been around and you need to pay them more. So we'll make them a manager. And that repeats itself every single time. And then eventually somebody goes, you know what, this management thing, we should only have people who like it and are good at it. That, that would be a good idea. Oh, man. Yeah, 100%. Now, I think what's unique to founders, though, is you do actually, even though it, it, it almost never comes natural, the thing that it takes for you to start an organization from nothing and turn it into something successful enough to have to manage somebody is almost, you know, it, it almost precludes you from being a good manager. It's just that they're almost mutually exclusive skill sets naturally. But here's the problem. If you just try and farm that out to somebody else and like go manage these people, but you never get the basic, basic, basic management skills yourself, you won't value that person and what they do enough. You won't be able to communicate with them enough. You won't be able to run in sync with them enough for them to actually do what you want them to do. And what happens when you're a star player and you keep trying to be a star player, you'll chase out the other captains. Right? They, they just won't want anything to do with you. Well, it's interesting. Malcolm Gladwell's got this concept of loose and strong ties in sports teams. And so he talks about basketball. You can have a star player in a basketball team. LeBron James, you know, you and I could go play with him and we'd win. I don't know. You might be good at basketball. I'm not. But, but, right. Or, but if you, but if, if you take a soccer team, it's very different, right? The whole team needs to come together and, and a cohesive team will beat a team with a with an all-star on it time and time again. And so it's going from thinking that this is a a basketball team and actually realizing that we're playing a different sport. And people have got to have positions and value that positions. 
Yeah, and and here's the thing that that's the sports world and and almost every other position or occupation has that founders don't, and that is th- that founders don't have sidelines, right? They're, it's not like they're moving from D one to D two or D two to D one, depending on you know how your your structure is. There there aren't these these visible milestones that you pass that mark that the game has changed. So for example, if you're a leader coming up inside an organization, you you start off as a star player, like go do your thing. You got to go do your thing. And then you do that really well. And they're like, this guy knows what he's doing. He must be able to manage people. Well, you and I know that's not necessarily true, but you get a new title to come with the new responsibility. There's some type of external validation that the game has changed. And even then folks still struggle with that. But for founders, you know, you go out founder, you got CEO on your business card from day one. It's not until stage five that you actually start acting like a CEO. And so there are four monumental shifts that happen along that route, but there's nothing to actually indicate that anything has changed. I was chatting to a client the other day and he's just been promoted. And he said to me, I've just hired somebody. He hired externally into his old role. And he said, I've hired somebody who's actually better than I am, which is very rare. People rarely do that. I think it's a credit to him that that that's what he's done. And that doesn't happen most of the time. Most of the time, people hire somebody, they promote somebody from within or, and it, over time, it's, they, they're not leaving any, uh, sort of organizational memory, right? You know, they got, they learned it on the job, they get promoted, but the job they give to somebody else is now much bigger than what it was when they got it. And there's no training program. We had a client here a couple of years ago and they said, okay, well, we, you know, they, they said, where could we be in three years time? hundred million. Okay. How many people will we have? 700. Okay. How many managers do we need? 70. How many have we got today? 10. Okay. How long does it take to train a manager? Well, I don't know. We'd quite like to give ourselves a couple of years maybe to, you know, train people up. Okay. Do you have a training program for 70 managers? And they're all looking at each other going, we don't have a training program for anybody, let alone 70 more managers. Right. And not only that, but nobody in the team wanted to take it on as their responsibility. And it, and it was just like, ah, oh, that is just coming at us so fast. It's already a bit creaky with the 10 that we've got. So it's just fascinating fascinating that when you get people to project into the future, they can see it. But at the time, it's like boiled, being a frog boiled in the water. It's getting hotter and hotter and you just have no idea. Yeah, it's so true. It's so true. And and so I think that's why, especially, again, especially for founders, and, and it, if you look at it, it's the same journey that everyone goes through. In fact, I, I actually recognize the pattern. And the reason I brought up movies is the same pattern that happens in movies, right? It's this, there's a universal pattern to this transition. But what's, again, so unique about founders is that there's so little external validation that you're moving from stage to stage. And for many of them, there's so little internal feedback right? The challenge function inside of organizations is so low. Inside your organization, you're king. You can do what you want, right? And that's not necessarily a bad thing. There's some effectiveness and efficiency gains for a time, but it's, it's, it works until it doesn't work. And then when it doesn't work, what do you do? And without this idea of recognizing there are different stages in this progression, it, it leaves you with either you know listening to people who are further down the road and trying to act like them prematurely, right? It's different leading an, a, a CEO of a 500-person company than a CEO of a five-person company. And if you try and act like 500, nothing's going to get done. In the same token, and that's typically for folks who are, who've been through this before, right? This is their second rodeo, if you will, or for folks who are very invested into learning and getting coaching and getting consulting is if you're not careful, you can actually overvalue the lessons from the future. Often when we're thinking about hiring and somebody says, right, I'm going to hire a sales director, sales manager, whatever. I say, okay, are we a startup or are we a scale up or are we a grown up? And they're like, what do you mean? I said, well, you're going to go and get CVs from sales for sales directors and they're all going to want the same money. But at a grown up, I don't know, a business like Dell, there is a process and the, the, you don't get to mess with the process in a scale up. You've already got a process, but we might need to make it a bit better in a startup. We're going to have to make it up from scratch. So. Are you the type of guy who likes to make it up? Are you the type of guy who likes to finesse it? Or are you the type of guy who just wants to run it and couldn't create a process if his hair was on fire? It's very, very different. And so often people make that mistake all the time. Yeah, to your point earlier, in the, in the, sca- the startup, sales director 
is another word for SDR, right? (laughs) Yeah, it's that is a title that is compensating for a lack of compensation. So yeah, it is a very different person in a very different role. So again, you see these kind of changes across the board, but but for founders in particular, it's so so very important to understand what the map is, to understand what these stages are, so that you can get into some of the nuance of that. But I mean, the big part of it is if if you don't, you end up hanging on to what you've done in the past that used to work and isn't anymore. You know it's not working, but you don't know why it's not working. And you know it did work. And so you can't let go of it. Or again, you, you grab onto something in the future of what it might be or will be or someone told you should be. In either case, what you do is you neglect the two or three things you actually need to be doing right now. I'd say, could you just run us through what the seven stages are? Uh, Let's go. We got about two hours, right? No, I'm just kidding. All right. So uh, I want to go through this. I'm going to give two names for each one. And and here's why. Again, we've, we've used several sports analogies. And the reason why that's so helpful is because it's in a box, right? There are sidelines. There are distinct positions. And so one of the things I do to help kind of counter the ambiguity that we face as founders is to map each of these stages to a position in a sports infrastructure. So we start off with the, it is actually pre-launch is the dissatisfied employee. Defining question is, you know, isn't there a better way, right? There has to be a better way of doing this. I, I bet I could do it better. And it's like being a trainee on the sideline. And the thing that we miss here in this stage is we try and skip straight to stage two, where we actually jump in and get the game done. But we actually don't know half of what we think we know. And we actually need to know four times as much as we think we need to know, right? So like what happens is if you can hang out and it is agonizing to hang out in this stage because you know you're going to start something. But a great example is Gary Vaynerchuk. When he moved from wine into basically social media, he had built a wine business on social media. Like the guy knew what he was doing. And instead of just jumping straight straight out there and saying, hey, I have a social media company. He volunteered and interned at multiple places before starting his social media company. And in doing that, he was able to massively short circuit some of the the challenges that we'll face in that startup mode. And he did it on someone else's dot, right? He did it with someone else's stuff on the line. And so being that trainee on the sidelines, you're learning how to play the game. Because you've got to do the whole thing, right? You know, when you're working for somebody else, I think that, you know, in the UK, the startup, you know, it's not a 21 year old software developer who's made, who's doing most of the startups. It's somebody with 12 years of industry experience who is that disgruntled employee. And they're going to bring one or two customers with them, but they don't know how to build a product. They don't know how to price it. They certainly probably don't know how to do go to market. And, you know, they might then limp along with one or two clients for a while. And once they're in there, they're too busy to sort the other stuff out. It's 100% right. Here's the difference. And and here's how you know whether you're ready to get out of stage one. Prior to stage one, the thing that makes us the dissatisfied employee is we learn how not to do things. I'm not going to manage my micromanage my people that way. I'm not going to speak to clients that way, right? I'm not going to follow these old stale processes that are suffocating innovation. We learn, we've got this whole list of how not to's, but we actually haven't synthesized that information into a set of how to's. And so then you get into the real world and it's like, well, how am I going to do that? I have no idea. I just know how not to do that. And and again, you'll figure it out. This isn't a, one of those fatalistic things. You know, someone, you're dogged and determined enough, which founders are, you're going to figure it out. It's just, will you have enough runway to do it? And so that's a big thing. We got to move from our how not to's to our how to's. And eventually that frustration reaches a boiling point. Similar to me writing my book, you know, folks who start a business start it because they just can't not start it. They have to start the business. And so they do, they go out, they make the leap. And and you're right. Most folks are not, even here in the US, most founders are not 21 year old tech startups. They are people who've got experience in an industry and they're going out and they're trying to make it happen. It's very, very similar here. They don't get as much media attention. It's maybe not not as glamorous, but it's every bit as real. And so the goal in the the start player, it's like being the start player on the field. And it's just being the best that you can be at at all the things that you need to do, which is a lot, right? You You are the LeBron James, like you are taking rebounds and you are dunking and you're winning, like you're doing all of it. And when you do that well, what happens? It grows. You get a few more clients, you get more work, you you have more products or more services, whatever, and you start needing to bring people around you. And the first couple are kind of supporting roles. But I found once you get to five, 10 employees, that's where the need tips to you actually are spending an, an enormous amount of time and energy managing people. 
And the hard part about this is that you don't like to be managed and you can't really fathom a group of people who are worth their salt that want to be managed. Like, what is that? And, and so folks in this stage, it's like being the captain on the field, right? You have to keep playing and you have to orchestrate everyone else around you moving in the same direction. And it leaves people asking the question, what's wrong with these people? Because they're not like you. And if they were like you, it'd be even worse. And so we've got to learn at this stage how to manage. Yes, absolutely. But specifically, we have to learn how to manage the right people because there are four leadership styles, and you know this from Les's work, and only one of those is what you really want, which means that you know three out of four, usually a little bit more than three out of four people that you might bring in are not actually a fit for right now. Doesn't matter what their resume is. Doesn't matter what their CV is, uh, like the cool kids say. It matters whether they can thrive in the environment that you have. And so what makes it so hard is founders aren't natural managers, and then they've hired the wrong people because they're not hirers either. And then they're, they realize, I don't want to give what this person needs from me in management. And, and intuitively, they know something is wrong, but, but they don't see any other way. And so our poor hiring decisions mixed with our, our, you know, mediocre at best managing skills, just, it's just brutal for founders and not to mention they're still in the game. They're still having to make the sales or whatever it is that they do. And I think that's why so many businesses don't get through the valley of death, right? So they get to sort of 10 to 15, which is the maximum span of control. If there's two founders, they get maybe 25 because it's just a little bit helpful. And, you know, that's sort of million, maybe two and a half million in the UK. And without then having a leadership team of some description with some people who can take that management weight off them, they just get stuck and they just go, well, this is harder. Like it's, I'm making less money. I'm having less fun. And so they say, I'm going to run this as a boutique firm because they just, they just can't, they can't get past that. Yeah. And I, for a lot of people, that's right. So he, once we get to this stage three, this reluctant manager stage, the very first thing you have to do is decide, am I going to push all the way through? Because it actually goes, we go deeper in the valley next, right? We're, it's not like, hey, as soon as I do this, we're on the other side. We've got another step down to make it happen. So you got to count the cost and say, do I want to get all the way through that? Or am I happy just doing what I do, right? For some people, their vision can be met and the freedom and autonomy they want can largely be met by just going back, having a couple people supporting them and doing their thing. I think one of the things that gets people stuck though is they don't know, nobody's told them they're gonna go down to get to the other side. No, everyone tells them it's up and to the right. And so it's like, they're gonna be, they're gonna make less money until they get through to about 20, 20, 25 people. And so they're at 15 and like, this is painful and, and I'm going to make less money. Have, and have they even got enough money to get through to 25? A hundred percent. And, and you picked up on the, one of the key things in this stage is you got to get a number two. Right. And that's why the co-founder thing works well. And it actually gets them through stage three and and bringing that co-founder, bringing another captain on the field who can play one side of the ball so you don't have to. Right. It is an essential part of the deal. And and so let's say we get that right. We, we get past that 15 barrier. We've got kind of a tandem working well. And that's when, yes, we got to start bringing in other folks. But as we do, we're touching the ball less and less. Right. It, it used to be that you did sales and, and he did service and support. Uh, and now you've got a sales manager. So, you know, you're doing less and less on sales. And, and maybe, you, you know, all the things that you're doing, you're starting to you have to move more and more of that off your plate to a leadership team. And that sales manager is not as good at selling as you are. So then all of a sudden, actually, you're, you've got, now got a challenge as well because your revenue's just gone down. Yeah, no, 100%. And most of that is your fault. And that's probably another episode for another time. But what has to happen here is you have to shift from what we call visionary sales to operator sales. And it's not worth it if you move from one salesperson to another. That's always down. But if you can make the shift from visionary sales, creative thinking, you make it up as we go, make the price list up on the fly, sell things we don't even have yet, to operator sales, here's a basic process for how we sell. Here's where we go find folks. Here's the funnel we bring them through. And here's how we execute. You can go to one, two, three, five, 15 sales reps right? But you have to make that transition. You can't just expect another person to come in and do the visionary, you know, jazz hands that you've been using to sell. <laughs> they can't play the founder card. And you still need to do that because that's where the big deals are. 
that's where you sit there and you make up a new product and a new price on the fly. Not only can you not hire people to do that, but you don't want to hire people to do that. That would be very dangerous. And so we move, and again, it is, so it's more down and to the right because now like we're more and more and more dependent on other people who we don't trust as much as we trust us. Yes, and we're further away from what, the skills we had when we started the business. A hundred percent. And so this is, again, this is just like getting to, you know, eight minutes left in the movie. Most people, if they take a moment to just stop and say, well, hold on a second. And they look at the last three, four, five years of their life. It's like, I have worked my off, you know, for years and it has done nothing but been harder right? I have more people. I'm dealing with more problems. We have bigger revenue numbers we have to hit. It's harder to hit those than ever. We're trying to hire people that keep messing up. I'm now firing my friends. Why did I ever do this? Right? And it's your, it's your guy who said like, I, the only reason I show up here is because I own the company and I have to, right? And it's like, and, and so the defining question of this stage is, is this it? Is this really what I signed up for? Is this really what being a CEO is all about? And, and it's devastating. That's why I call the stage the disillusioned leader. Uh, it, it happens all the time. And people can get stuck there for years. We worked with a client a few years ago now. And when I met the pair of them, they were just like, Dom, uh, it's like Groundhog Day. Every Monday I get up and I think I'm going to go to work and we'll fail to grow this business again. Three years. And first day on site with him, he said, if you can't help us fix this in six months, you can just have it because I've had enough. It's just devastating. Right. Yeah. I, and I work with folks in this stage all the time and, and they think that it, they think it's over. Right. Like this is we've had our run. This is as far as I can take this thing. This is where we, we buy the lie of the professional CEO. Right. And there's some truth to that, because what we actually need to learn how to do is hire executives. We've talked about leaders a lot. You, the big transition here to get out of this is you have to start learning to hire and lead executives. That's a different caliber person. Right. It's a different threat to your ego as the founder. It's a different time frame to execution. And we have to move to where we are no longer making policy decisions, we are making people decisions. And as you said, nobody's taught us to hire people along the way. And of course, so what happens is they then hire that executive badly, that burns their fingers. They do it again, burns their fingers again. Now they're just terrified and they're back where they were. They're disillusioned and they don't think they can get out of the hole. And that's it. And that's why it's this disillusioned leader. And again, it's we're now down to the right two successive times. And, you know, someone takes a moment to just kind of look back and it's like, that was a lot better back there. And if I keep doing this, I'm going to end up down there, right? Like this is, there's enough of a pattern to give me a trajectory at this point. And it is down, down, down. And that's why a lot of folks will bail at this stage. They'll get stuck at this stage. Or they will try and hire a professional CEO. and. I've seen people do that and go bust. And it's premature because they haven't figured out how to be a CEO yet. And that's the key to this. And, and the single biggest transition is the shift from founder to CEO. It's a hard thing to do. But if you can make that shift from founder to CEO, you can build an executive team around you. That's where you move to stage five. And, and the, the beautiful thing about it, it's like moving from coach on the sidelines where you're there in, when it's 32 and raining, like it's uh, 32 Fahrenheit and raining. It's miserable, right? It's, it's just about freezing. It's miserable, right? Well, let me tell you what, it is always sunny and let's go Celsius 21 degrees in the box, right? And, and, and there's a full bar and you've got all the food you want. And, and so it, there's air conditioning, right? There's, there's some poshness to this, but the most important thing is the freedom to work asynchronously, it's the freedom to be a visionary again and be the CEO that's saying, hey, I'm going to create an environment for my team to succeed this year so I can focus on next year and two years out and three years out. And when you do that, most visionary founders, if you, if you can help them build an executive team around them, they actually have everything they need to be to be the CEO that their company needs moving forward. Oh, it's that time. I mean, you know, we often do a, we often do a diary exercise to find out where people are spending the time. And it's like they're spending no time at all on strategy, which I, I say strategy is next year's profit. Right. And if you're not doing the strategy, next year's profit will be like this year and you're not where you want to be. And they're like, ah, uh, 
but how do I get out of here? And it's just, just have to say, trust me, there is a process. And if you do it and you can get out of this, you can get through the other side. And process is the key word, right? You've got to start bringing in systems and processes, not just to how you execute as a company, but how you make decisions as a team. And so when you start building this CEO skill set, and, and it takes work, it's not something that happens instantly, it takes work, and you definitely want to make sure you're doing it right. Because if you're gonna spend that much time working on something, that much energy, if you're gonna get that far outside of your comfort zone, you better be doing the right thing. And, and this is where bringing in a guide like yourself, someone who knows what this pattern looks like, is irreplaceable. I, I would not recommend going through this phase without it. Now, here's why it's so important and this is an important note about the stages, is that they all accumulate. And so if you try and skip a stage, if you try and skip this stage of learning how to be a CEO and stepping to stage six, which I call the true owner, where you actually hire a CEO, the chances of that working are so slim. Like The chances of it failing in, in various ways, right? Catastrophically, that definitely happens, but maybe not catastrophically, but it just drifts from the thing that you want it to be. They take the company and make it something other than what you want. Because when you hire that, external CEO, I say, look, the CEO has got to do two things. If they do other things, it's great, but they've got to do things. Oh, create the vision, own the vision, sell the vision. Oh, if you go and hire a CEO and you call them CEO, well, you've given up the vision. So that's, it's automatically going to become a thing you don't want, unless, as you say, you're ready to become the true owner. And that's exactly right. And so in, in, in developing those skills yourself, you are developing the skill to understand who that next person is. Now, here's the secret to succession, right? And, and it's right. It is that when you hire a CEO, that is a, a better word for it is a chief visionary officer. You are bringing in another person with another vision for the organization. You do not want to hand your company off to someone who's going after your vision. You're, you're dooming it to mediocrity at best right? What you're doing is you're creating a museum of what you did in the past. You're not creating a company that can succeed. And so you've got to find another visionary who has the next vision for the organization. I was talking with somebody and, and, and they were like, I don't know if I can trust anyone to have my values. And I was like, you know, it's harder than that. You have to trust someone to change your values the right way. Yeah. You've got to give up and let it evolve. It's like when your kids leave home. It's exactly right. And so, and, and what happens is we do that so wrong because we never figured out how to do it ourselves, right? We try and skip straight to like, how many business owners do you know that start their company with the goal of not running it? It's so trendy and cool, like, oh, I got this company that runs itself. And that's fine. That's a good thing. But if you try and go from stage two to stage six, it's not going to work very well. Right? It's either going to permanently stunt the growth of the organization, fail miserably, or it's going to have this rubber band thing where you keep you try to get away and you come smashing back into the organization again and again and again. Dan Sullivan says that in Strategic Coach says that transition is from a self-managed company to a self-multiplying company. And it's that that's a tough transition. It's the difference between a COO and a CEO, right? You can hand your company off to a COO and they will continue to keep the trains on the tracks. But when you have to build new tracks, you need a CEO. And, and now here's the remarkable thing about that. Again, because these stages accumulate. So if you can learn how to lead another visionary leader, if you can learn how to make space for their vision and kind of get those things working together, if you can learn how to bring your strengths to support them, that's what creates the ability to step into the final stage, which very few ever make it here. But stage seven is the visionary founder. And that's where we can actually get back into the game, not because we have to, not because our company requires of us, but because we love the game, right? And, and we want to help other people do it. And we know how to lead other visionaries. You don't lead them by telling them what to do, right? It's a very different style of leadership. But when you can do that, that's where there's that uh, old Greek proverb that society grows great when old men plant trees under whose shade they'll never sit. And for founders who've been there, who've done that, the greatest, and I would argue the most rewarding thing they can do with their life and their career is to go back and give to other founders and help them avoid the same pain that they experienced. That's why I love doing what I do. It's fab. Scott, what is it you know now you wish you'd known earlier? 
I wish I wish I knew there was a map, you know, like and with that, similar to what we were saying around that stage five is I wish I realized that doing it alone takes a long time, right? That there's this part of it that you've got to figure some of these lessons out on your own. And there is a value to that. But when we overvalue our own ability to figure things out, when we overvalue our own map making skills, we end up just tripping over ourselves again and again and again. And I experienced a lot. I enjoyed a lot of success in a relatively short period of time. It could have been a lot shorter if I had recognized that being alone takes a long time. Constantly reinventing the wheel. It's just hard. Especially, you know, sometimes, like, I'm glad we don't use the same wheels we used 2,000 years ago. Like, don't get me wrong. Right? Like, there is a point where we do need to reinvent the wheel, but don't think that you're there yet, right? Like if you're still, you know, if you're still using stone wheels, someone else has rubber wheels that are working a lot better. And so you don't have to reinvent it, even though there's a better one, it's out there already and you can adopt it. And so as well as reading Founders Evolution, and how do they get that? Where's the best place to find that? Yeah, uh, scalearchitects.com slash founders. You can get a copy of the book for free. Uh, I, I kind of build it as the book for founders who are too busy for books, right? So it's it's very short. Uh, you can uh, jump to the stage that you're in if you want to, uh, and it's gonna give you a couple of essential strategies. In doing that, you're gonna get two or three things that you need to be working on. But the really cool thing about it is if you read even a little bit between the lines, you'll recognize there's 20 or 30 things you don't need to be working on right now. And so most folks who get in there and actually find what stage they're in, take a look at the essential strategies, find they're saving between five and 10 hours a week on stuff that they do not need to be doing right now. And they can spend that time on strategy and developing next year's profit line. That's exactly right. You have to create space. You have to create space to grow. You will not grow if you're constantly putting out fires and chasing the next urgent task. It's just not possible. What else should people pick up? Predictable success? So I got a couple of them behind me. I'm, I'm a little partial to it, but Predictable Success book changed my life. We've talked about less a couple of times now. It is an absolutely remarkable book. And it does a similar thing. It goes through the seven stages that organizations go through from, from birth to death. And, and, and so that it's a one-two combo, right? I use it with all my clients. We do both. We find out where their organization is. We find out where they are. And the clarity that comes from cross-referencing those two is remarkable. A shout out to someone on, on uh, your side of the pond is Rachel Turner. She's got a, a book that's very, very similar in nature. She's done a great job with some really, really even helpful practical exercises afterwards. And it's called the Founder's Survival Guide. Very good. We've had her on the podcast. She's magic. Yeah, yeah. She's awesome. Rachel's fantastic. And then a, a shout out to a friend of mine, uh, Similar Space. These are all books that are written specifically for founders. Is a brand new book coming out, I think in a month or two, by Benj Miller and a couple of his friends called Renegades. So keep an eye out for that. Uh, it's going to be hitting Amazon and everywhere else here pretty soon. But Renegades is a fantastic, fantastic book on how to make that leap from stage three to stage four and then ultimately stage five. Fantastic. Scott, absolute pleasure talking to you again as ever. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. If you'd be kind enough to leave a review, it will really help other like-minded entrepreneurs find this podcast and grow our community. For all information relating to this episode, you can go to monkhouseandcompany.com forward slash podcast, where you'll find some cracking show notes, additional reading and links relating to our guest. There you can also find my blog and past episodes of my subjectively not crap newsletter, where I'll update you on the best articles I read that week, some recommended books and other podcasts. Thanks, and I will see you next week.